I'll be here all night, guys. Um, my name is Mitch Hershey. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Um, nice to see some people that I've met before. Nice to meet some new guys as well. Um, I have gone to the Beulah Beach Retreat in Ohio a couple of times. Um, and then last year in Pennsylvania, we had a retreat that was a little bit closer to home. Uh, but it's nice to be out here with you guys, see, see your retreat. Again, meet some new guys. And again, thanks for, thanks for having me out here. Um, so a little bit about myself. I am married to my wife, Heather. We've been married for a little over three years. We have a daughter, Peyton, who is going to be two coming up here in February and uh, expecting another little girl coming up in November. So we're excited about that and looking forward to that. Now I can say that, you know, maybe next month, um, that sounds pretty close, but we're excited to add to the family and, and keep growing. Uh, we live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I work in the real estate business there. Um, Lancaster, some of you may have heard it, heard of it before. Uh, one of the things that we're probably most well known for is our Amish population. Um, I am not Amish. I did not take a horse and buggy to get here. Would have needed to leave a long time ago to, to get out here in time for that. Um, but Lancaster is about 30 minutes away from Hershey, Pennsylvania. And uh, a couple people have asked, my last name is Hershey. Um, a lot of times people will ask, am I related to Milton Hershey? Do I have any, any claim to that? The answer to that is no. I'm not. I wish that I was. I wish that I could say that I was. But unfortunately, I'm just a regular guy here to talk to you about a three-legged stool. Maybe. I might be. Um, so you probably looked in your, in your program there, in your outline, and saw a three-legged stool. And I know that there's a lot of guys here for the first time this weekend. And maybe you're thinking that this is the part of the weekend where we really channel our inner manliness, where we build something with our hands, we take it back to our families and show them, you know, how, how manly we are and how tough we are. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to disappoint you in that regard. That is not what we're going to be doing for the next little bit here. So the question then is, why is this talk called the three-legged stool? Uh, well, years ago, back in the day, farmers would use this type of stool um, that had a flat part that you would sit on, and it had a single leg that would go down, and you'd kind of stabilize yourself on it while you milked the cows or did other chores. And I can say it, I've never tried to use something like that. I don't think that I'd be very good at it, but they figured out a way to do it. Probably not the most efficient way to use things. Two legs on a stool may be a little bit more efficient, might be a little bit easier to use that, but the bottom line is that for a stool to be able to stand on itself, for it to be able to function properly and stand on itself, you need to have at least three legs to it. And so in the context of God's sovereignty, what I mean by the three-legged stool is three points that you'll see in your outline. One, that God is good, that God is in control, and that God has my best interests in mind. What I'd like to do as we talk tonight is talk about each one of those three truths individually, break them down a little bit, and then talk about them kind of in conjunction with, with, another, with one another as well. Um, when we examine those three truths together, I think that it gives us a unique look at God's sovereignty um, that will challenge us and that we can apply to our lives as well. Before we do that, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this weekend. We thank you for this evening, for these men that are here. We know that these words are, are from you, that uh, anything that I say is, is only from you, Lord. But we pray that the words that I do say would be pleasing to you, um, that for what you would have these men to learn, um, that you would teach them through me, Lord, and that it would be uh, a productive time and, and we would learn things that we can put into practice. Amen. So I mentioned to you guys the first one that I want to talk about is that God is good. 
And one of the things that I think that we need to understand before we dive into, one, this, this topic as a whole, but then, you know, specifically the idea that God is good, is that if we're going to make any sense of this, if we're going to start to try to understand these words, it's to remember that we are not the ones that get to define what is good. Ultimately, God gets to define what is good. We may question that sometimes, but at the end of the day, God's character is good. God's actions are nothing but good. And we need to remember that he's the one that gets to define that as we look through these things. So I want to start by looking at a couple of verses that examine both God's character in terms of his goodness and then also some verses that talk about his actions and how his goodness manifests itself through that. And I'm going to go through some of these references rather quickly. Don't feel like you need to turn there. If you want to jot down the references, by all means, feel free to do so. Um, But again, don't feel like you need to turn to each one. So when talking about the goodness of God's character, um, we find that when we go to the Psalms, there are tons of scripture um, that talk about the goodness of God. We could spend a lot of time just going through a lot of those references. Certainly we don't have time for all of that, but I want to point out just a couple. All three of these are from the Psalms, um, and the first one is Psalms 107.1, which says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We hear that phrase a lot. Sometimes it's used interchangeably with goodness, steadfast love. Sometimes it's used um, in conjunction with it as well. But nonetheless, in the Psalms, we see that a lot. And we see that, that the writer talks about the steadfast love of the Lord enduring forever. Psalms 33.5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Again, seeing that phrase. Psalms 145, verses 7 through 9 says, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Here in these verses, we start to see some other traits that flow out of God's goodness to us. So we see that it says that he is gracious and merciful, that he is slow to anger, and that he is abounding in love for us. All of these are part of God's character, and they flow from his goodness to us. Looking at some verses on his actions as well, the first one that I picked out is from Genesis 131. So this is at the end of the creation account. God has spent the past six days forming light, making land, making sea, making birds of the air, beasts of the field. He gets to the end of that, he finishes, and he makes man in his own image, and he sits back, and he admires his creation, and it says in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So we see that even from the beginning of time when we're talking about creation, God's actions and his creation were very good. Psalms 119.68 says, You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. We see here an application that the goodness of God causes us to want to be like him as well, that he is good and he does good. And as as a result of that, it makes us want to learn more about him. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I like this verse because it talks about not only God's goodness, but it reminds us of the stability of God, too, that he is an unchanging God, that he does not vary, he doesn't change, and because of that, we can have confidence in the goodness that he gives to us. So those are some verses on the character of God, on God showing his goodness through his actions. 
I want to take a look at a couple of more of our, couple more verses here, but we're going to notice a little bit of a difference as we look to these verses. Um, If there's an application to pull out of some of these, it's that sometimes to see his goodness, we don't see it right away, and we do need to exercise faith. Sometimes it's a bit veiled, and we need to commit to his goodness before we actually see it. Lamentations 3, 21 through 25 are some verses that talk about this. So Lamentations was, was uh, it sounds like the most likely writer of that book was the prophet Jeremiah. And it is a book of just that. If you've ever read through Lamentations, it is a book of lamenting. I looked up the definition of what a lament is, and it is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. This is a book full of passionate expressions of grief or sorrow. So in the middle of that book, where Jeremiah is pouring out his heart, he changes course a little bit. He turns to hope. And he turns to God's goodness. And in verse 21 through 25, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So in the middle of... Jeremiah lamenting in the middle of him pouring out his soul, he realizes that even in the midst of that, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ends, that his mercies are infinite, and that every day we see new characters of God, that he is faithful to the end. I think it's worth noting that that comes in the middle of a, of a book of lamentations. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Psalm 86.5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Again, here we see another trait of God combined with his goodness, his forgiveness. Psalm 31.19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. So when we look at those verses, at those, those four passages, we notice that those verses take things a little bit further, and they say things like, the Lord is good for those who, to those who wait for him and to those who seek him, that he knows those who take refuge in him, that he is abounding to those who call on him. See, all of those statements in these verses that, re, that we read, they seem to indicate times when maybe things aren't going so well. Wait suggests maybe not having what is desired, Taking refuge could indicate persecution or feeling beat up by the world or by our circumstances. Call on him seems to be at a time when supernatural help is needed. And And yet God tells us in those verses that his goodness is there as well. Sometimes, however, as I noted, sometimes that goodness may be veiled. He may be asking us to step out in faith, to seek him, to wait on him to call on him, to believe that his goodness is there even when it may not be quite as evident. And another thing that I think we need to remember is that sometimes when things happen to us and we in that moment think that they're a bad thing, it could be the best thing that happened to us. We just don't realize it at the time. It takes time to figure that out. So I'm going to give you guys an example of that. It's near and dear to my heart. Lancaster is about an hour and a half away from Philadelphia which means that for better or for worse, I am a Philadelphia sports fan. 
love me or hate me. Specifically, I'm a big Eagles fan. So if you know anything about Philadelphia fans, there's two pretty accurate traits that we have. One is that we're not actually happy unless we're upset. We kind of thrive when, when, uh, when things aren't going so well and we can kind of have a rain cloud over us. And the second is that even when things are going well, we know that it's only a matter of time until they start going badly. So in 2017, a couple years ago, um, the Eagles didn't necessarily have high expectations going into the season. Things started out slow. There were the normal boos and the normal questions that, that always happen uh, by the end of the first quarter. Um, but as the season started to go on, they started to play better, they started to play well, and they get to week 14. They're 10-2. and two. They're going into Los Angeles to play the Rams, who are also having a really good season. And this is a huge game for playoff implications. You know, at 10-2, and two, they're pretty much already into the playoffs, but seeding is a big part of that, and um, this game was an important one. So they probably weren't expected to win that game, but when you know they go into Los Angeles, they beat the Rams, but it comes at a cost. And their starting quarterback, Carson Wentz, who's having an MVP caliber year, suffers a knee injury, and the next day it's confirmed that he tore his ACL and that he's done for the year. So if you would have looked at just the box score, if you would have looked at just the, the final score of that, you would have looked at that and said, hey, Eagles fans are probably pretty happy. This was a big win for them. But I can tell you that Monday when it was confirmed that it was an ACL and that he was done for the rest of the year, that was not a happy day. So Nick Foles steps in, back up Nick Foles. We win two out of our next three games. We finish 13-3. and three. We lock up the number one seed in the NFC. But I can tell you that we pretty much limped to the finish line and that there was not a whole lot of encouragement about what was to come. Pretty much thought that we were waiting to die our inevitable playoff death and then start the long offseason of questioning once again. But somehow we escaped against Atlanta with a win in the divisional round. We ran all over the Vikings in the NFC Championship, and before you know it, we are in the Super Bowl playing the team that you want to play in the Super Bowl, the New England Patriots. If you're going to play a team in the Super Bowl, you want to play the best. You want to make it count. So I don't know what the line was. I'm not a betting man. But I know that against all odds, and probably everyone was thinking that it would be the Patriots, the Eagles win that game. They win their first Super Bowl championship, and the city is on fire. Now, guys, I do not know, and I can't say for certain, that if Carson Wentz would not have gotten injured, that the Eagles might not have won a Super Bowl. They could have. But I know for darn certain that they won a Super Bowl with Nick Foles playing. And looking back, that Monday after they beat the Rams, and everyone thought that the season was over, no one would have predicted what actually happened. That bad thing that everyone thought was terrible ended up being the best thing that could have happened to them. And we appreciate him very much. He will forever live in infamy in Philadelphia. So guys, that's just an example of, and it's a surface level example, but I think it makes a good point that there are going to be times where in the moment things are going to happen to us and we're not going to think that they're very good. And in fact, they're going to look like they're terrible. They're going to look like they could be the worst thing that happened to us. But when we look back, sometimes we do see God at work in our lives using those bad things for his glory. So another question that I want to pose is, is about what does experiencing God's goodness do to us? Does it move us to action? Does it move us to change in our relationships? 
And I want to make a point here, too, that when we talk about this, it's important to remember that God's goodness is at work in our lives, regardless of whether or not we're looking for it. He is working in our lives. He does not need us to to look for it, for it to still be working within us. But I do think it's important to note that when we are looking for it, especially in the midst of our circumstances, and we'll talk about this a little bit later as we go on, but when we're looking for his goodness and when we recognize it intentionally, it can change how we look at our circumstances and it can change how we interact with one another. So one of the things that God's goodness does to us is that it leads us to repentance. Romans 2.4 talks about this. It says that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. The Greek word here for repentance in that verse is metanoia, which when you look a little bit further at that Greek word, metanoia, one of the words that's used in that definition is reversal. So taken literally, God's goodness in the context of repentance should cause us to reverse our course, to turn around 180 degrees, run away from the thing that we were doing, and go in the opposite direction. That's the power that God's goodness can have on us. It should also increase our faith exponentially. So when we think upon and when we remember times and look back, remember the times that God was good to us in the past, remember examples of that, it can allow us to build our faith in the times that will come, certainly in the future. And I think that it's also helpful for us to remember that drawing on the example of other men, of other believers, can be extremely valuable here as well. You may be going through a trial, you may be going through something where you're questioning God's goodness, and your, your brother in Christ may have gone through that same thing or something very similar. Draw on that experience. Talk to him about it. Let him share with you how he saw God's goodness. And by the same token, if you are in a situation where you have experienced something like that and you can share that with somebody else who may be in need, I think that's a powerful way that we can be working with our brothers in Christ as well. It should also manifest itself in our relationships through patience, through forgiveness, through generosity. The list goes on. When we allow God's goodness to affect us, it changes how we interact with other men and how we interact with people around us. When the topic of God's goodness comes up, I think a lot of the times a question that comes up, and it's in the church and it's, it's out of the church too, is the question of why do, good thing, or why do bad things happen to good people? Right? When, when bad things happen, we tend to ask that question. We tend to, to come up against that. So it's something that we've probably heard a lot during bad times, but is it a true statement? Is it a myth or is it reality? Well, we talked about this earlier this weekend, guys, but the reality of it is we are inherently sinners. We are deserving of death. We are not good people. Sin has been a part of our DNA since the beginning of time. When we look at Romans, it tells us there, that there is no one who is righteous. It tells us that the, that the wages of our sin is death. And we're not talking about temporal death here. We're talking about eternal death. Eternal separation from God. So the wages of our sin are death. We are not good people. And I don't think we have a right to ask that question. So the solution to that, though, the solution to, to the trials that we go through, and the only solution that we really have, and the greatest act of God's goodness to us, was his gift of Jesus to us. His death on the cross allowing us to experience that eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still sinners, so while we were still deserving of death, Christ died for us. 
And Ephesians 2 says that it's nothing that, that we did by our own. It's only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So guys, we, deserve, we are deserving as human beings, as, as messed up individuals, we are deserving of death. We are deserving of eternal separation from God. But it is only by his goodness, it is only by his grace, that we're given the opportunity to spend eternity with him. So when we have those questions and doubt his goodness, I think it's important for us to remember how sinful we actually are. Any questions so far? Questions, comments? Good? All right. So let's move on to the second truth that I want to talk about here, and that is that God is in control. The challenge with with control sometimes is that there are some things that we want to control incorrectly. And then there are other times that we wonder if God is in control. So we can talk about a couple different types of control here. I want to talk a little bit about both of those, and we'll kind of go back and forth between them. I first want to start talking about the things that, that maybe we want to control. Um, and my confession to you is that I'm a, I'm a white-knuckled man, meaning that I hold tightly to the things that I think that I can control. And I have found that I probably have, and this is an individual application for me, but I have found that I probably have a bigger problem giving up control in those quote-unquote small things in my life, those day-to-day things that I, I have this illusion that I can actually have control over. It's much harder for me to give up those things than it is for me to give up the idea that God is in control and that he's working in my life. So I'm talking my, to myself here just as much as anyone else. So some of the things that I wrote down that I think that we try to control, and certainly this is not an exhaustive list. We could have a lot of, a lot of topics that we talk about, but these are just a few that I want to look at that we try to control. And then uh, on the other hand, what does the Bible say about them instead? So certainly one of those things is marriage. Or relation, dating relationships. Um, if, we're, if we're married, it's pretty easy for us to be very selfish, to want to control our wives, to, to meet our needs, to do what we want to do, to, to live you know, according to our standards. Um, we can be very selfish and very controlling with that. But Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 tells us something different. It raises the bar for us, and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Blemish. It's pretty easy, right? Comes naturally to all of us. Very countercultural for us to live in that way, and it goes against what we want to do. Another one is finances or career success. When we were doing our introductions, I know that there's a lot of small business owners here. Um, I work in the real estate world, as I mentioned, and so it's very easy for me to think that there is a cause and effect relationship between my input and then my output. It's easy for me to think that the more calls that I make, the more leads that I'm going to convert. The more leads I convert, the more appointments I get. The more appointments I get, the more listings I take. The more listings I take, the more houses I sell. The more houses I sell, the more money I make. It's pretty easy to make that, that progression in my human mind. Um, but God tells us something different in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's easy for me, too, to look at my accomplishments in that, in that world and start to pat myself on the back a little bit and say that I had a part in that. But guys, that's not the case. Everything that we have, everything that we do, everything that we accomplish is a gift from God. And 
I think it may have been brought up before, but if you need a, a study to go through on that topic, I would challenge you, find a friend, find another brother, pick up a copy of Why Go to Work. I think we talked about it a little bit earlier this weekend, but that will really help you to look at your purpose um, through work and will start to change your, your mentality when it comes to that. Schedules is certainly another thing. Um, we want to control our time. We want to spend time on the things that we want to do, not on the things that other people want us to do. We don't necessarily want to give our time, and we, want to, we tend to pack our schedules so thick that we can't fit anything in there even when good opportunities come up. We want to plan for the next thing. We want to look ahead to tomorrow. I could show you my calendar right now, and I probably know what I'll be doing next week when I get back to the office, but God wants us to do something different. He wants us to trust him. And in James four, thirteen to 15, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. We want to plan for the future. We want to plan ahead. But guys, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. This could be our last day on earth, and we need to trust God that, that he can that, trust God with our planning and trust God with our schedules. The last one that I wrote down, probably something that we all struggle with, and that's our possessions, our tangible possessions. It's easy to want to control those, to feel stability, to feel security in those. And again, that's an illusion, a false sense of security. Because Matthew tells us in chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So again, guys, not an exhaustive list, but those are just a few things that I thought of that we try to exercise control in, in our lives, and certainly God calls us to a different standard. I want to look at a few verses that, that talk about kind of the bigger picture of, of God's control. Um, I think when we, when we talk about the topic of God's control in terms of the bigger things, sometimes that can give us peace and security, and that can give us comfort. And other times that can almost make us freak out at, at the amount of control that God has in our lives. And there's probably men on either side of, of the equation there. But a couple of verses on this. Isaiah 45, 6-7 says that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Guys, he's making it pretty clear there that there's, there's no one else who's in charge of these things. There's no one else whose hand is involved in these things. And there's, there's some, some words in that passage that are not easy to swallow. They're not easy to look at and accept. To say that I form light and create darkness, I make well-being, and I create calamity. These are not easy words to consider um, when we have a temporal mindset. When we change it to the eternal, things can, things can change. When we think about control sometimes, that leads to, to worry, to anxiety. We sometimes start to question whether or not God is in control. If he is in control, why are these things happening to me? Why am I experiencing these types of things? Certainly anxiety is something that we can all deal with at various times, but a verse to comfort us in those situations is Matthew ten twenty nine to 31. It says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. 
you are of more value than many sparrows. I think we can take comfort and we can take encouragement in words like that when we wonder whether or not God is in control and whether, he, whether or not he's looking out for us, whether or not he's working out for us, we can look at that and know that he is so intimately connected with us that he knows the number of hairs that go on our head and that he cares for us tremendously. Psalms 139 is a passage that, for me, has always brought me a lot of encouragement, um, especially when I think about... Uh, when I think about kids, when I think about just the idea of God being at work in our lives, and, and I think about you know being two months away from, from meeting another daughter and think about how God's already working things out, um, I'm going to read the better part of this chapter. If you want to turn to Psalm 139 and follow along, feel free to do so. It's like I go to start picking out verses from this chapter, and then I keep going, and I keep going, and before I know it, there's 16 verses that I want to share. So I'm going to read through verses 1 through 16. Again, guys, I think this just can give us extreme security in God and in his control in our lives. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 16. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right, sh- your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written... Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I love that last verse there, talking about God knowing us before we even came into existence in this world. Before anyone else knew us, before anyone else saw us, God had ordained for us, God had planned for us each day of our lives. And there can be sometimes a little bit of a challenge with that, where that kind of starts to freak you out and you wonder about free will and kind of the mesh between those two. But guys, I think that that can give us a lot of comfort and a lot of security in his plans for our life. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So again, we're going back to the beginning of creation here, that simply with God's word, he has the ability to create, and that from the start, he has been in control with what he has created. Acts 17 Verses 24 to 27. The Lord God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him, and find him. 
you go a little bit later into that passage, it says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. That sounds like a God that is in control to me. So we hear verses like that. We hear passages like that. And the question to ourselves then is how do we respond to that? Does that excite us? Does that give us confidence? Does that give us anxiety at God's control in our lives? Well, I'd tell you that there's probably a couple ways we can respond to it. We can avoid it. We can reject it. We can say that it does not apply to us. But guys, I will tell you that that does not make it any less valid. In the same way that I can say that gravity does not apply to me, if I take an airplane up and I go skydiving without a parachute, I can tell you that 10 times out of 10, gravity is going to win. That truth is going to win out. So instead of avoiding it, instead of running away from it or pretending that it doesn't exist, my encouragement to you would to be embrace God's control in your life, to allow it to manifest God's peace in your life in a way that only he can do that. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, talking about anxiety, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This may be a little bit more of an individual application for me, but guys, I would encourage you, write down that passage. Commit those verses to memory, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I have leaned on those verses so many times, and they have been applicable in many situations from the minor things to the major things that have happened to me. Probably the thing that I, in addition to talking about, you know, not being anxious and seeing that command, I think one of the things that I really like about this passage is that it does not tell us that when we present our requests to God, that they're going to be answered. That exactly how we request those things is going to happen. They might. God may perform a miracle, but it doesn't promise that to us. In verse 7, it says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace in the midst of chaos. Guys, so an unbelieving world around us, when we can display that, when we can show that to the guys that are in our network, in our sphere of influence, that can be an incredible testimony to them. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 talks about resting in Christ. Certainly, we all have busy schedules where we're running from one thing to the next, and, and a lot of times that's a result of, of trying to control things so much. We don't want to give it to someone else. We don't want to give it to God. We want to keep it within our control. But Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As when we're trying to control so many things, when we're exhausting ourselves, running from, from thing to thing, from obligation to obligation, when we're wearing ourselves out trying to control things, just remember that Jesus wants us to rest in him and take on his yoke. John 16.33 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's an encouraging verse, isn't it? it? tells us that we will have trial, we will have tribulation, but we can take peace in the fact that God has overcome the world. The things that we think are out of our control, the things that we worry about, the things that give us anxiety, we can trust that those are things that are within God's control. So certainly we've all had times in our lives when we feel like the weight of the world is upon us. We might be anxious about the future. 
There are unknowns in front of us, and at times we may feel like things are totally and completely out of our control. Sometimes that may cause us to have more worry and anxiety. But it's verses like these that remind us that God is in control of our lives, that we don't need to worry about tomorrow because, as Jesus says in Matthew 6.34, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I had an example of really learning about God's control last year, um, last April, uh, a little bit after my daughter was born. So she was, she was born in February of 2018. And when she was two months old, um, we found that she had a hernia. And went to the doctor, they looked at it, they confirmed that it was. They told us that hernias are not very uncommon in babies, they happen. Um, and typically it's just something that you need to monitor. But as our pediatrician looked at it a little bit further, she just became a little bit more concerned that it was a little bit too close to Peyton's ovaries and just had concerns that over time, if it was not addressed, that it could get worse and potentially spread and, and cause her to, to not be able to have, have children. So they made the recommendation for us to do surgery we agreed to do that. Um, and all the doctor's visits and all the ultrasounds happened on a Thursday and Friday. By Monday morning, 5 a.m., we're driving up to Hershey Medical Center. We have surgery scheduled. And I remember going on that drive, um, 5 a.m., on a Monday morning with my wife, feeling, feeling God's peace as we drove up there, just feeling like it was in his hands. I remember getting there, getting checked in, waiting in the in the pre-operating room as the doctors and the nurses come in and kind of explain to you what they're going to be doing. It actually ended up being a, a double hernia that they took care of. And then I remember walking, walking down the hall with her, picking her up, taking her down the hallway, down towards surgery. And eventually you get to the point where they say, okay, this is, this is it. We'll take her from here. And I remember, you know, they're, they're wheeling that bed on a cart down the hallway. And I remember placing her on, on that bed and then watching her go through those doors and just thinking that I was feeling so out of control and feeling so helpless that there was nothing that I could do for her at that time. And I have that, that image seared in my memory of, of her going down the hallway on this bed completely out of my control. When I think about her growing up, when I pray with her, when I pray for her future, for her future spouse, for her future plans, and I tend to go down the path of worrying about those things, I go back to that image and it reminds me she's not in my control. She does not belong to me. She is God's. She is in his control. And I can trust him with that. And that's been a big encouragement for me. Any questions on God's control before we move on to the next one? because I don't have very many answers, so that's fine. So the third truth that I want to look at is God has my best interest in mind. And guys, if we understand this final truth, I think that it can really bring together all that we have talked about and allow us to see beyond our circumstances, to see God's goodness, and to see God's control in our lives. To illustrate that, I want to look at a story from Scripture. So turn to Genesis 37. And we are going to look at the example of Joseph. Genesis 37. When you think about the life of Joseph, there's really only one way to describe it, and it's that of a roller coaster. The ups and downs that he experienced throughout his life are certainly tremendous. So I'm going to go through, through the story of Joseph here, point out a couple of verses. 
I want to start in verse 3. So it says that he was singled out by his father as the one that he most loved. So his dad literally tells him and tells his brothers, I love you more than the rest of them. So he gets a nice target on his back. Now, if that were me, I have to think that I'd probably try to tone that down a little bit. I probably wouldn't rub it in my brother's faces. I'd probably try to turn the attention away from that. Joseph doesn't really do anything to dispel that. In fact, he has a couple of dreams where he basically tells his brothers that I saw you bowing down to me. Doesn't go over well with them. Surprise, right? Didn't see that one coming. So later in verse 18, his brothers have been jealous of him. They get the idea to kill him. They throw him in a pit. But then they change their mind. They say, no, we're not going to kill him. Let's sell him to, a, to this caravan of foreigners that's going through. And we'll get rid of him once and for all. So they sell him to this caravan. They take him to Egypt where he ends up working, we see in verse 36, he ends up working for one of Pharaoh's officers. And now going from the depths that he was in this pit, he starts to experience success again. So the story's trending upwards. Genesis 39, we see that Joseph is falsely accused of rape and he's thrown into prison. Here we go again. So he's in prison. He correctly interprets the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, this is not a nursery rhyme, even though it kind of sounds like that. The chief cupbearer and the chief baker. These were actually two of the most important positions in Egypt. Chief cupbearer tested Pharaoh's drinks to make sure that they weren't poisoned. Same thing for the chief baker. They needed to be men that were extremely trustworthy. So they're thrown into prison. Joseph is there. They both have dreams. And here we go again with Joseph interpreting dreams. He correctly interprets them, however. And at this point, he's probably thinking that this interpreting dreams thing is not really working out for him, but he continues to do it. So he interprets them correctly. The chief cupbearer gets restored to his position. The chief baker is executed. But even after the chief cupbearer is restored to his position, he forgets about Joseph. So he probably thought that this is his ticket out of jail. He just came through for this guy. He's got a really high position in Egypt. He's going to remember me. He's going to pull me out of prison. Not so. Two years go by, and Pharaoh has a dream. Calls in his magicians, calls in his sorcerers, asks them to interpret it, no one can. And then all of a sudden, two years later, that chief cupbearer remembers, hey, by the way, when I was in prison there, there was, there was this guy, Joseph. He correctly interpreted my dream, got me back to where I am. Maybe we should check, check on him and see if he can do it again. Well, third time's a charm, because Joseph does correctly interpret that dream for Pharaoh. And as a result of that, he's essentially made the number two man in all of Egypt. So as a result of that, he's able to provide for his brothers. He's able to provide for his family. He brings them to Egypt. He stores up plenty of food um, for the upcoming famine. And he looks after them. And another cool just side note here is that is how the nation of Israel gets to Egypt as well. And we see then that after a couple of hundred years, they do the exodus out of Egypt, bringing even more glory to God. We see God working together there. But at the end of the story of Joseph, we get to the end of Genesis. His father has died, so Jacob has passed away. And I don't know how many years later that was, but it had to be a long time. And after all this time, Jacob has died, and now his brothers say, now that dad is gone, Joseph is finally going to get us back. He's finally going to exact his revenge on us. This is what he's been waiting for for all this time. I can't imagine that they were really enjoying life if they had that in the back of their minds this entire time. So they're convinced that this, they're going to get what's coming to them. But what does Joseph say instead? 
Genesis 50, 20 says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know, guys, there are many times throughout the story of Joseph where it would appear that God did not have his best interest in mind. There were many times that he was wronged and he could have questioned that. But Joseph was a man who understood his circumstances. He understood that even in spite of his trials, he saw God at work and he saw God working for his glory. There's a quote that I love on circumstances by Charles Swindoll. It says, I'm convinced that life is 10% circumstances and 90% how I react to them. Words like that can change our perspective in many ways. When we decide the kind of attitude that we're going to have in the midst of our circumstances, it starts to shift our mindset from the temporal to the eternal. See, guys, it's a very different thing to look at God through the lens of our circumstances than it is to look at our circumstances through God's lens. Looking at God through the lens of our circumstances is temporal, it is short-sighted, and it will only lead to disappointment. But if we look at our circumstances through God's lens, if we ask, them to, ask him to show us how he is working, even when we don't understand it, and I would argue especially when we don't understand it, that comes from having an eternal mindset. Having an eternal mindset also helps us to move away from focusing on the result and towards focusing on Christ instead. When we focus on the result or when we focus on the temporal, we are only going to be disappointed. Things will fail us. It's only a matter of time. But when we focus on Christ, when we focus on the eternal, we will see our circumstances in a completely different way. Guys, our circumstances are going to change daily, but our God does not. And that's where we need to have our hope. It's important for us to remember as we think about this, as we think about the idea of God having our best interests at heart, even when it doesn't appear to be that way, we need to remind ourselves that we are not going to understand everything that happens to us. We are not made that way. We must remember Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Guys, that is not a natural way for us to think. We want to have things figured out. We want to know what's going on. We want to have an explanation for everything. That's how we're wired. We're not wired to think that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But when we ask God to remove our own sinful, original thoughts from our mind and replace it with a godly way of thinking, we can begin to, to view our circumstances very differently. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about this. These verses certainly apply in many different situations. But it talks about an eternal mindset that we are not going to be able to develop to develop on our own. It is only through God's grace that we're able to develop this mindset. Again, guys, these are verses that I would challenge you to write down to commit these verses to memory. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Two words we see there, guys. Conformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Conformed in this sense is a passive word. Conformed happens without us even thinking about it. If we're not actively thinking about renewing our minds, we're going to conform to the world. It happens to us every day. When we're active, when we're intentional, and allow ourselves to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, by replacing our thoughts with God's thoughts, that's when we can develop that eternal mindset. Another part of having an eternal mindset is talked about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, where it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So guys, this is part of God's universal purpose for the believer. If we act on his universal will, if we rejoice always, if we pray without ceasing, if we give thanks in all circumstances, it doesn't say sometimes, it says in all circumstances, as we do these things that are countercultural, that don't make sense to the people around us, we're going to gain a more clear vision of God's unique will for our lives. We can't live out these things without having that eternal mindset. So where does that leave us? We've talked about the three truths, that God is good, that God is in control, and that God has our best interest in mind. Guys, I would suggest to you that there are probably two types of people in this room. There are those who have experienced tremendous hurt and loss and pain in their lives, and there are people who may not have experienced things to that degree. So I want to talk first to the ones who have experienced that type of pain and loss. And I want to first give the caveat to say that it, it is difficult for me to identify with you, truthfully. I have not had many situations in my life where I have shaken my fist at God, where I have questioned what he is doing in my life. I've had grandparents pass away. I've, I've almost lost a job due to employment changes. But aside from, from things like that, I have not had times where I have cried out and questioned what God is doing in my life. Maybe that doesn't give me the license to speak to you guys about these things. Maybe it doesn't give me a, a license to talk to you who have been affected by that pain and question God's goodness, but the Bible certainly gives us examples of that. So turn to James 1. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4. James 1, 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now my version says steadfastness, but others say patience. If you look at that word in the Strong's Concordance and look at the original Greek word, it's defined as cheerful or hopeful endurance or constancy. So we see here, guys, that hope plays a pivotal role in enduring the trials that we face. Those trials are going to indicate to us where we have placed our hope. If we've placed our hope in the eternal, chances are that we will waver because those things will disappoint us. It is only through placing our hope in Christ that we will not be disappointed. Now guys, that is not a natural mindset. You're telling me that when trials come, I'm supposed to celebrate, I'm supposed to count it all joy when I face trials like that? I want to avoid pain. I don't want to deal with, I don't want to deal with pain. I want to do everything that I can to avoid it. But no, God tells us that we are to rejoice in those times. And we see the work that he does in our lives when we obey him with that. 
See, this begins to increase the godly qualities in us that will enhance our faith for the next time that those trials come around. Because chances are, guys, it's going to happen again. And it also serves as a testimony to people around us, both believers and unbelievers. With an eternal mindset, those are the things that we should be concerned about. Not temporal comfort and not pain aversion. Later at the end of that passage in verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God had promised to those who love him. Let that be our goal when trials come our way, guys. Turn to Romans 5, if you will. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, another passage that talks about how we can grow through our trials. I actually want to start at the end of chapter 4. So put your finger in in verses 3 to 5 and let's jump back to the end of chapter 4. This is an example of Abraham's faith in the midst of trial that he was facing. We pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 4. It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. How would you like if that was the description of your body? Good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what was promised. I think there's an important line in those verses, guys, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He didn't necessarily have that faith first. He started by giving glory to God, even in the midst of his circumstances. As a result of making that decision, as a result of giving glory to God, even when it may not have made sense, his faith increased. The evidence was stacked against Abraham and Sarah in terms of having a baby. He was old, she was barren, didn't make a whole lot of sense. But in spite of the evidence, nothing made him waver. Although I'm sure that if he told anyone that he was told that Sarah was going to have a baby, they probably would have looked at him like he was crazy. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. His faith was active in the midst of uncertainty, and as a result, it grew And it grew and it grew. Faith through trials is like compound interest. It just grows upon itself. Once we have faith through trials, it makes it that much easier to have faith the next time around. So if we jump ahead to verses 3 through 5 of Romans chapter 5, we see that it says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, guys, this is not something that happens overnight where we wake up and and start rejoicing in our sufferings. This is a process that God's working out in us. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes faith for this work to happen in our lives. But again, we see that it leads us to hope. Guys, I would challenge you that if we are going to endure the trials of this life, we must drive our stake into the ground of God's faithfulness to us. Just as Abraham's faith did not waver in the midst of his questioning, in the midst of questioning and trials, so too must we establish our faith in him so that when we experience trials, our faith will remain strong as well. 
Turn with me to another passage, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. In Jerry's workshop earlier today, we talked about discipline. And this passage talks about that as well. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasurable, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained from it, trained by it. So guys, just as we all, I'm sure, experienced discipline from our earthly fathers, so too we experience that discipline from our heavenly father as well. And we're told that it's because he loves us. So not only that, but verse 8 tells us that we are left, if we are left without discipline, we are illegitimate children and not sons. And think about that. As, as fathers, we don't walk around just disciplining any kid that, that we see. You probably want to do that sometimes, but we're not, it's not our business to discipline someone else's kid. We discipline our own kids. So when we see that discipline, we, we need to remember that that's coming from our Heavenly Father. See, guys, our, our earthly fathers disciplined us because they thought it was best, and, and sometimes it was. But God disciplines us. Why? For our good that we may share in his holiness. I would encourage you to think about that the next time that you are enduring discipline from God. It is because he has our best interests in mind. Last passage I want to look at. Turn to Romans 9. Romans 9, verses 20 through 23. Guys, we could spend a whole lot of time on this passage, but we're just going to focus on these couple verses and pick it up at verse 20 that says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Because I'm sure that we are all familiar with examples of parents losing a child, of someone losing a spouse to disease, to tragedy, to some unforeseen circumstance. Maybe there are men in this room who have experienced that. And what, guys, when that happens, it's easy to shake our fists at God and to ask him why a good God would cause such pain in someone's life. Guys, I will tell you, and I'm sure that the guys who have experienced that type of pain would tell you as well, that those have been the times that I have seen God's goodness more at work than at any other time. We see scripture is filled with examples like this, 
And if we look around in our lives, we look around in the lives of other men and the people around us, and if we choose to believe in God's goodness, I think we'll see examples of that as well. I think it's important for us to remember that God may be using your past pain, your past hurt to shape a testimony that he is going to use for his glory in ways that we may not ever be able to understand. Psalms 119.71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Will you choose to believe in his goodness, in his sovereignty, in his will for your life, and give him praise in the midst of your past or current pain and loss? I would challenge you to consider that. So let's move to the other side, to those that have not experienced that kind of tremendous pain and loss. Guys, I got great news for you. It's coming. It's coming. Jesus tells us that much. John sixteen thirty three. we read that verse earlier, tells us that those trials and those tribulations, we're going to face them. So the question is then, what can we do to prepare? My challenge to each one of us, and I'm talking directly to myself here, is to establish a biblical understanding that what we have is not ours. That it belongs to God. That he can take it from us at any point that he wants to. I think of God calling Abraham to sacrifice his only son. The one that was promised to him long before it ever came to pass. Can you imagine God asking you to give up something like that? Can you imagine struggling with infertility for so long? Only to be finally given the son that you have wanted for years. And then to be asked to sacrifice him. And this wasn't just his son. This was the promise of a covenant to come for generations. This had bigger implications. It's easy for us to think that Abraham had to think that when God spoke to him that he misheard. That he, he had to say something incorrectly, right? No, there's no way, God, that after all this waiting, that after, after the miracle of me being 100 years old and my wife being barren, that you give us this son and then you ask to take it away from me? No, that can't be right. But we don't see that happen at all. Because we see that Abraham understood that even the things that he held so dearly were not his own, but they were God's, and he was willing to give them up and suffer loss. For me, I think of the things that I hold dear in my life, my wife, my daughter. I think about how I would react if they were given a sickness or if they were taken away from me. The thought of that absolutely terrifies me, if I'm being honest with you. My prayer my prayer for you guys as well is that even if something like that happened, that we would declare God's goodness and allow him to use it for his glory. My encouragement to each one of us is to consider the idea of placing our families, our jobs, our health, our possessions on the altar of God, praying those things back to God on a regular basis, acknowledging that everything we have belongs to him, and that he is working everything together for our good. Now guys, I am certainly not suggesting that we take pain and loss with no emotions and function as robots with no thought about things like that. Far from it. I cannot stress enough that the process of trusting God certainly does not mean that we are always going to feel good in that moment. I think, guys, too, if you, if you do feel guilt 
about questioning God, if you do, do feel guilt about wondering why he did certain things in your life, I do think you need to forgive yourself for that. There's an awesome testimony. We've mentioned the website where some of these talks are going to be after, um, after the weekend. There's an awesome testimony there from Lost Valley earlier this year. If you want to hear an example of a modern-day Job that had things taken away from him that, that caused him to question God, caused him to wonder why God was doing things to him, I would encourage you, take 20 minutes, listen to that testimony. Listen to it on the way home tomorrow. You'll see the wrestling. You'll see the questions. You'll see the doubt. You'll see all those things, but you'll also see his testimony as a result of that. We see that even Jesus did this in the garden. Asking God, imploring him, Lord, if there's, God, if there's another way for us to do this, if there's any other way that your will can be accomplished, Let's look into that. Let's explore that. But what does he say? He says, not my will, but yours be done. As if we decide now to believe that God is good, that he is in control, and that he has our best interests in mind, it will dramatically change our perspective and will allow God's glory to be evidenced through us. I think we need to remember that it may not make sense now. It may not make sense 10 or 20 years from now. And guys, unfortunately, it may not make sense on this side of eternity. We may never see how God uses our circumstances. But someday it will. And that's exactly what we're living for. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Guys, we serve a good, good God who loves us more than we can comprehend. He has a plan for each one of our lives. My hope and our prayer for us is that we would choose to see his goodness in spite of our circumstances and as a result, bring glory to him. Thanks, guys.